The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Today in the pod, we have former senior advisor to Barack Obama, the director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, and the host of the Axe Files, David Axelrod. Finally. This is the crossover episode everyone's been asking for. Like a year in the making. Before we begin, everyone go subscribe to Pod Save the World. Tommy has Gail Smith, who's the former director of USAID on, with friends like these. Her show on Friday was excellent. She had uh, Adam Savage on from Mythbusters, and they helped uh, someone whose relative was believing in conspiracy theories. And so we talked about sort of how to stop conspiracy theories, which is interesting. And then, of course, love it or leave it, we're going to have another show this Friday. So uh, sign up for that and check it out. Love it's not going to interrupt our podcast today. He's not here, Dan. Oh, that's amazing. Do not... He's not here now. (laughs) I fully expect at the end, we're about to wrap up, and I hear like... David Axelrod, it's John Lovett. Just wanted to chime in here. <laughs> I would not be surprised. Um, and also, yeah. uh, our shows and Pod Tours America, our shows in Seattle and San Francisco are sold out, but there are still tickets left to the LA show May 17th at the Ace Hotel here in Los Angeles. So uh, grab yourself some tickets. Um, My main takeaway is that you and Lovett need more friends. Tommy and I did fine <laughs> on the San Francisco show. I think it's just further away. You know, people want to just bide their time. Ace is a big anyway. We'll what, see. What, Maybe whatever no one helps come. you sleep at night. Maybe in no your one parachute will come. sheets. San Francisco did sell out for that fast, so that was good. You guys got you and Tommy have some good fans up there. Um, yeah. Okay, we had a whole outline, and as as uh, often hap- often it happens here at Pod Save America. Um, you know, we had to change it a little bit because of Trump's tweets this morning. That usually uh, usually roughs up our morning. Um, so he tweeted this morning, we must fight the Freedom Caucus and the Democrats in 2018. Um, he, also, he also tweeted that the New York Times has disgraced the media world and said, change libel laws, which is the kind of tweet that if it happened right after he won, people would think it's like the second coming of, like, this, this is like the fascist president we've all been worried about. But now when he tweets it, you're just like, eh. <laughs> is that because we've normalized it or... People just think he's too incompetent to actually enact his fascist agenda. That's what I was going to say. The, the sec- it's the latter. Because it's like, oh, you're going to change the libel laws? Like, that requires a legislative strategy. That would require you to pass something through Congress. And we know you've been having trouble with that. So, okay. Um, no, I mean, it's still scary and horrifying that he would say such a thing. But uh, it's just him acting out at this point. Um, now, to the Freedom Caucus Democrats thing. Um, what do you think of that legislative strategy, Dan? Uh, pissing off the 30 to 40 members of the Freedom Caucus in the House and uh, the Democrats, who the White House has been saying for the last couple of days now they are going to reach out to. I don't think, John, I don't want to shatter your hopes and dreams, but I don't think this is a quote unquote strategy. Yeah, I don't know if it's a strategy either. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because if it is a strategy, it's a strategy to never pass legislation again. Because th- if you don't have either of those, you don't have enough votes. 
Yeah, like, I don't know. Where is he getting his votes from? I mean, he hasn't exactly been um, very nice to the moderates in in the Republican House either, you know? So that no. leaves, like, that leaves like Paul Ryan and whatever votes Paul Ryan can get, which is certainly not a majority in the House. Um and he would need he needs Democrats in the Senate to get most things done unless he's using a reconciliation bill that only needs fifty votes, which you can only use, you know, on health care reform and tax reform now and budget stuff. And you can only use and you can only use it once. You can only use it once. It's like a it's like a lifeline, you know. Um, so <laughs> during the campaign, Trump promised to change Washington, drain the swamp, and fight for the working class. Let's take stock of how he's doing here. Um so he tries to pass a health care bill that basically was just a huge tax cut to rich people and took away health insurance for middle class and poor people. That pulled at 17%, couldn't even pass the Republican House. Um, there was some talk yesterday, I noticed, that conservative House Republicans in the Freedom Caucus were going to talk with the more moderate House Republicans in the Tuesday group on a deal to revive the health care bill. Um, do we think this has any chance of passing, that this could be revived, or is this dead for good? I, to follow the Favreau rule of politics, never underestimate mm. uh, how sort of shameless House Republicans can be. And so I, it doesn't seem like it is on the cusp of happening since whatever it is, the Tuesday group or whatever the moderates call themselves uh, declared they would never meet with the Freedom Caucus again. So it didn't seem like it's on the cusp of getting a deal. But it would not shock me if they found a way to pass something that had no chance of moving in the Senate. Yeah, it does seem like at this point, Paul Ryan just wants to say that he passed something out of the House so that his job is done. Yeah. And I could see them potentially... Like, it's not clear to me why they don't just pass the straight repeal bill. They've passed 37 times, even though they know it can't pass the Senate. At least just like... Well, it's you interesting would throw though that, a bone to your angry poor people hating base. I mean, this is a testament to the activism we've seen over the last couple of months because you're right, the house these same house Republicans have passed so many straight repeal bills just taking away Obamacare and now a lot of these moderate Republicans or Republicans in these districts where Clinton won or competitive districts um, don't believe that they can get away with passing a repeal bill that doesn't replace it with something better or something that covers people or what whatever, um, because people have shown up at their town halls, they've called them, and they're afraid of just passing a repeal bill, um, these people in the Tuesday group, which I think makes up a, you know, a sizable... I think I think there were like 34, anywhere between 30 and 50 uh, votes uh, on the more moderate side that they were going to probably lose from this, or that at least they had the potential to lose in this vote. Um, but yeah, no, there was this Bloomberg story yesterday saying that the Tuesday group and the House Freedom Caucus wanted to work together on a bill, but then today, I think it was Chris Collins, um, Republican from New York, said, uh, yeah, what you just said, they'll they'll never meet with the Freedom Caucus. So cold water on that. Yeah. That uh, seemed like a kind of sketchy report that it, was sort of poo-pooed by the re- sort of the reporters who were pretty close to what's happening on the Hill pretty right. quickly. And then Paul Ryan uh, gave an interview to Nora O'Donnell this morning, morning at CBS where a bunch of crazy shit in that interview. But um, one of the things he said is he's worried that Trump will go work with Democrats to change Obamacare uh, if the Republicans don't pass something on their own. Um, wow. 
I don't think I've ever heard a Speaker of the House or a President or any leader in Congress be like, you know what I'm really worried about is that my members will go work with the other party. Like, that's just pretty blatant. Yeah, it's I, – I don't really understand. I think it's possible Paul Ryan doesn't understand what he's trying to do here. Like, one theoretical strategy is – the only this may be a cudgel to get the Freedom Caucus is if they're afraid that Trump will work with Democrats, but it doesn't seem particularly believable. Um, and certainly, if they they see Democrats every day, and I think Democrats will probably tell them that that's an unlikely outcome. Um, is he just like working out some anger at Trump over how Trump handled the after you know all the stories that say they blame Paul Ryan for this? So. It's not, this seems like a smart move, whatever the move is. It's, it seems like he's putting his politics with the Freedom Caucus ahead of his politics with anyone else, right? Like, he's trying to signal to them, like, if you don't play ball, then I know that you would hate if Trump worked with Democrats because it would uh, we'd have more moderate legislation and a more moderate health care replacement bill. And so if you don't join the team and try to make some concessions— what we're going to get is an Obamacare replacement that's more that looks more moderate or more liberal. It seems like that's what he's trying to do, but that I mean, it I guess it goes to show you how worried Paul Ryan is, which is also how worried John Boehner was about the Freedom Caucus revolting and preventing him from getting anything done. Yeah, survival first. Like survival's the first instinct, I guess. Still, certainly not to accomplish anything. It's not to no at all. Um so in the aftermath of this whole healthcare disaster, White House officials have been telling reporters that Trump may reach out to Democrats to cut a deal on healthcare or infrastructure, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is what Ryan was afraid of too. Um, oh, so he invited best. he invited some of these Democrats to the White House, some of the Senate Democrats. Um, dude, there's a BuzzFeed story from yesterday that said Trump believes that the Congressional Black Caucus might be willing to cut deals with him. Like, what are these people smoking? Do you think Trump or any of the Yahoos that work for him have any idea what Trump's approval rating is in the districts of the members of the Congressional Black Caucus? I, <laughs> like zero in some cases. Abs- actually zero. I couldn't. I mean, here's one thing that's happening, though, which the D.C. press often does in situations like this. Um, there's a lot of stories that are focusing right now on personalities and like, can Trump negotiate with Democrats? Can Paul Ryan and Trump get along? Can this person, that person? And it's like, I always think, and this happened in the Obama administration too, I always think there's way too much focus on the individual personalities and not enough focus on sort of the larger structural challenges that these people are all facing, right? Like, I don't think that like... Trump is going to win over Democrats by not insulting them or inviting them to the White House or any of that bullshit. He'd win them over by proposing legislation that they approve of, or at least that's in the ballpark of what they might approve of and allows them to compromise a little bit. Right. And he actually can't do that. Right. Right. Like it is not – there is nothing that Trump can propose that would get Democrats – that Paul Ryan is going to bring to the floor of the House. Because if Paul Ryan brought a bill that had mostly Democrat or large Democratic support, he would no longer be Speaker. And so this is like a dumb, you know, there's going to be, going to be a raft of stories that say that Paul Ryan needs to, needs to learn how to play golf so he and Trump can go to Mar-a-Lago together and bond. <laughs> um, you know, it's like politics is about 
incentives, right? Like what is the incentive structure of the players involved? Right. And there is zero political incentive for Democrats to work with Trump. In fact, there is a huge political disincentive to be anywhere near him, given how horrendous Trump's numbers are with Democrats and independents. The only people who like Trump are Trump's base, and those people have not and will not vote for Democrats in Congress. So they don't give a shit about it. So it is just like like we have said before in many of our aggressive and incorrect prognostications around 2016, like politics is covered like a novel when it is much more, it, it's, you know, we need hero, we need protagonists and antagonists and we need a plot line and a narrative. And the truth is you can understand a lot of what motivates people just by looking at who their voters are, what the approval ratings of the various players are and what the electoral history in their district is. It's not that complicated. Well, and it's one of the reasons that we ended up getting 2016 wrong is I think we bought too much into the novel approach, like Trump is the villain and, you know, like it's, but there, there were bigger structural forces at play there, you know? I mean, the interesting thing about the house Republicans is like under Obama, I always thought that the, the primary force in Washington that was preventing any progress was the House Republican Conference for the reasons that we just talked about, which is that the Republican Speaker of the House, in order to pass things through the House, needs Republicans and Democrats. But if the Republican Speaker of the House brings Democrats along, there is a group of 30 to 40 Republicans in his caucus or her caucus that would revolt because they don't want any governing whatsoever. They are extreme far-right people, right? And so, therefore, nothing can pass out of the House unless it looks, unless it's okay with the Freedom Caucus. Like, the House Freedom Caucus really is holding the rest of the government hostage. They were under Obama, and they are under Trump, too. It didn't matter that the president changed or the party changed. Like, if, if we do not defeat the House Republicans and, like, wipe out most of that caucus in an election, this will con- this pattern will continue over and over and over again. Yeah, the Republican Party is not is not a cohesive ideological party. It is a series. It's not even a it's not even a party of, you know, mi- you know, mildly conflicting somewhat overlapping ideologies. It's a collection of of a di- of different groups of ideologues who do not believe the same thing. What Paul Ryan believes the Republican Party to be is very far from what Donald Trump believes it to be. Paul Ryan is close to Wall Street. He's pro-trade. He wants to cut, privatize, eliminate Medicare, Social Security entitlements. Paul Ryan comes from a Wall Street-centered party. Trump comes from a working-class-centered party. You have a bunch of nativists in the middle who are part of both, right. um, like Steve King, and who were also part of the Trump world. There's the Breitbart, you know, sort of nationalist Brexit wing. And it's impot- like this was true in the Obama world, and Donald Trump did not solve that problem by getting elected. Well, I think the other point, too, is is Trump is too – I mean, you could say that Trump comes from this, like, working-class tradition, but Trump really hasn't thought much about his ideology, right? Like, it doesn't seem like anyone in his administration really has, right? Like, Rich Lowry, um, a conservative, has a very good piece in Politico called The Crisis of Trumpism, where he, he basically argues, like – the problem with Trumpism is it Trump isn't really trying it. He's not trying to pass an agenda that would appeal to the working class voters, at least economically. Um, you know, he's appealing to some nativist tendencies, certainly, but he's not promoting an agenda that would appeal economically to the working class voters who elected him. Uh, he's not even trying because he's being he's letting Paul Ryan railroad him on all of these different issues. 
and not just Paul Ryan, we should say, people in his own administration that he has picked to lead. Uh, his administration from Mike Pence to Tom Price to all of these people who are basically Paul Ryan acolytes. Okay. So, which moves on to our next topic. Like, because Donald Trump's legislative agenda isn't going anywhere, all the damage he's doing is via executive order, right? Or when the House can pass something that is what Paul Ryan wants and the Freedom Caucus wants. So, there right. is a lot of bad stuff that's been happening in, in the last couple of weeks. So, just before we started this, uh, Mike Pence cast the tie-breaking vote on a Senate bill that would let, sta- let, would let states deny Title X family planning funds to Planned Parenthood. This is something that Obama put in place. Um, he passed the first resolution. There's actually a, one more vote tonight on this, but it looks like um, they'll be able to do that. Uh, yesterday, Scott Pruitt, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, rejected the conclusion of the agency's own chemical safety experts who recommended that the government ban a widely used pesticide because it might poison children and farm workers. Do you think that's what Trump voters wanted? <laughs> yes. There was a huge populist movement across Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan about too few unsafe chemicals uh, out there. And I'm glad they could respond to that call. On Tuesday... 264 Republicans in Congress voted to reverse an Obama-era privacy rule that would have prevented internet service providers like Comcast and Verizon to sell your internet browsing data and history to whoever wants to buy it. That was something, huh? Yeah, like, I didn't... What? Like, why? I don't understand. (laughs) I mean, I I understand uh, the internet service providers uh, give a lot of money uh, to folks in Congress, but... You, what is the what is the ideological small government Reagan conservatism argument for allowing people's browsing histories to be sold uh, without their permission? Yeah, like who? What voter went to the polls being like, "Yeah, sell my shit. That's what I want. That's this is I, I'm voting for Donald Trump because I believe that Comcast should have my browsing history. I think it's too it's private very- right now." <laughs> It's very, there is too much privacy. We must change that. And it's, not only is there too much privacy, large multinational corporations are not getting the opportunity to make additional money off of me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So that one's bad. And then the big, the big one, Trump signed an executive order on Tuesday that instructed the EPA to roll back Obama's clean power plan which would have replaced coal-fired power plants with natural gas, solar, wind, and other sources of renewable energy. Um, this will take a while. To take, you know, it's, There's plenty of potential for litigation on this, so it doesn't go into effect immediately. Um, but it basically tries to curb most of the government's efforts to fight climate change. Um, they also jettisoned um, what the government has to do, which is take into account the social cost of carbon. So when you issue a regulation... You have to judge, you know, how much it would impact. Uh, you have to take into effect what the cost of carbon would be, right? And no longer do you have to do that now. Um, in fact, Politico reported that a supervisor at the Energy Department told the staff not to even use the phrase climate change anymore. That's where we are. Like, all the other things, bad. This one is really like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, we can come back to the silver linings buried in this very dark carbon filled cloud, but mm-hmm. is like there is a very in a normal world with normal Republicans and a normal functioning opposition party, we 
the the, the response would be we're going to repeal Obama's solution to climate change, and then we're going to propose our own, you know, quote unquote, more market centered or free enterprise or. Right whatever version of it right but instead it is we're in this binary choice between do what every scientist in the world wants you to do and save the planet or destroy it um and line the pockets of rich fossil fuel industries it's just it's insane it's insane it's dangerous it's embarrassing too like uh, there's a report this morning the one thing he hasn't done yet is he hasn't pulled the united states out of the paris agreement which is an agreement, you know, historic agreement among most nations of the world to curb climate change for the first time. And it brought along nations like China and India that have been, you know, developing nations, so they pollute a lot more. And uh, they were saying, you know, the United States basically had to push China to be part of this agreement, right? Because China's been growing and and using a lot of carbon and, and contributing to global warming. But now, because Trump's president, they're saying that the Chinese will probably do more than the United States over the long term to curb climate change. And that China may be the one that has to push the rest of the world to do stuff because the United States now will not lead on this because we have extremely reactionary party that is running the country. I mean, it's like you said, like we can have a debate on how fast or slow you battle climate change and what kind of approaches you use, whether they're more market or more government based. Um, but we shouldn't be having a fucking debate on whether you should curb climate change or not. It's insane. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And the fact that there are these stories out today that China, who up until two years ago refused to do almost anything on climate change, is now going to become the world leader on this, while we become the laughing stock of the world. Yeah. Do, do you remember those stories in the transition about how Ivanka and Jared were going to we're going to save the planet um, by pushing Trump to do the right thing on climate. Yes, and also by the way, this is what Ivanka and Jared were telling a bunch of business leaders and a lot of the tech people about why they should be on Trump's advisory council because they could influence him. This is like one reason why fucking Elon Musk is still on the council because oh maybe I can maybe I can have some kind of influence on climate change and well like does doesn't seem like that's working you know. No, no, it is not. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com podcast25. Guys, it's been a rough year. 
It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. So the tough part of this is like some of these executive orders, I think, can be fought through litigation, right? And so there's a hope that uh, that we tie them up in court on a lot of this. You know, I think we need to put public pressure on them. But a lot of these things are a lot of these actions are just actions that Trump can take on his own um, that we really can't stop by yelling at members of Congress. Um, but it is something to know and something to remember when we're you know, running in 2018 and Republicans pretend that they're the party of working class people and not the party of letting corporations do whatever the fuck they please, you know? That'd be a pretty uh, good slogan. Let, country, <laughs> let corporations do whatever the fuck they please. I mean, Vote Trump pets. That's basically the agenda that they have right now from top to bottom. So um, now, if you, you know, like if you believe that tax cuts for everyone and corporations doing whatever they want is the best way to run government, then like by all means run on that. I don't think a lot of Republicans will. They'll pretend that they're Look, for working you, people. Right. If you think Wall Street and large corporations have been getting a raw deal in this country for the last few years, step up. You know, this is your chance to give them the salvation they need by voting Republican. <laughs> so the the most immediate challenge that um, the, the crew in Washington faces is that uh, there could be a possible government shutdown if we do not fund the government by April 28th. Um, very perfectly, the shutdown would happen on April 29th, which would be Trump's 100th day in office. <laughs> um, so what is this all about? Well, they have to pass a bill that will keep the government running um, because you have to you know, appropriate so much money for the government to keep running. So why is this controversial? Well, uh, the Republicans control the House, control the Senate, control the presidency, so you wouldn't think it would be controversial, but they need 60 votes in the Senate to pass this government funding bill, so it does require Democratic votes. Of course, if they just put up a bill that said, let's keep funding the government at current levels, and let's just have the debate about exactly how we fund everything later, it would probably sail right through. That's not what they want to do. Uh, Trump has asked for $30 billion in extra defense spending. He's asked for $3.8 billion to build the wall. Um, He wants to pay for some of this by cutting education, Pell Grants, other social programs, um, so that's one problem. A lot of Republican senators, Roy Blunt the other day from Missouri was saying, no way is this wall funding going to happen in this bill. Uh, Paul Ryan this morning to Nora actually said that he didn't think the wall funding would be in this government uh, spending bill either. Um, the House Freedom Caucus and some other Republicans want to defund Planned Parenthood in the bill. Um, that would be a non-starter in the Senate. That would not get through the Senate, not just because of Democrats, but because of some Republicans. So... What is the answer here? Well, here's my question for you. Mm-hmm. If let's okay, you are Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer for a second. Mm-hmm. Fun. Paul Ryan puts up a just plain straight extension of funding, but tells you I need forty of your votes to pass it. Right? Do you help him? Well, if it's a bill that 
I mean, if it just if it keeps the government running at Obama era levels of funding, yeah, I probably do. Because like at that point, that point, then you become the Democrats shutting down government, which would hurt a lot of people because you're asking for specific things, right? Like you're asking for more funding for X or Y and Z. And I think there's other avenues to do that. I think if I think if Republicans change the Obama era levels of funding at all to include things like the wall or to defund Planned Parenthood, then you certainly don't give Paul Ryan the votes because then they're trying to get their way through this bill or threatening to shut the government down. And then, you know, that's a fight that you win. I'm sort of torn on this one. I Mm -hmm. think you're probably right. But there's a little bit of, you know, sort of fuck you. Like you treat us like shit. Trash is Nancy Pelosi, John Lewis, fake tear Schumer and everything on Twitter <laughs> has never reached out to them in any way, shape or form. And then is like, hey, we cannot get our shit together to pass our own president's, right. you know, desire to keep the government running. So do some work for us. Like, it's kind of hard not to tell them to go fuck themselves and figure it out on your own. Paul Ryan, you got to whip, whip some votes. Well, I think it's not just like, go fuck yourselves. The question is, what do you want? Right. Like if if Nancy and Chuck want to have like a list of demands that that Ryan has to give them to fund the government, then like, let's see that, you know. Yeah. I don't think you do it for nothing. You're going to get something out of it. The debt ceiling to me is different. Debt ceiling is very different. Yes. You don't fuck with the debt ceiling. You just don't. (laughs) That's like global catastrophe. So Um, now, well, it's interesting, though. I feel like Paul Ryan is sort of going to lean is already leaning towards passing a clean bill here. Because he told Nora that he wants, uh, he told Nora O'Donnell this morning he wants the Planned Parenthood defunding in the health care bill, which is funny because he's not getting a health care bill at this point. So I don't know if that's just trying to placate the Freedom Caucus people who want the who they want to defund Planned Parenthood in this government funding bill, right? And Paul Ryan's basically telling them, no, 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 don't do it in this bill. You'll screw everything up. We'll get it done in the health care bill. But of course, there's not going to be a health care bill. Yeah. Um, and Paul Ryan also said, we're not going to have a shutdown. The president doesn't want to shut down. I don't want to shut down. So it, it seems like right now a lot of these Republicans are leaning towards um, screwing over the Freedom Caucus and not giving them what they want in order to keep the government funding. But that's yeah, it's now. Just, we'll see what happens. You cannot keep the government open and put Planned Parenthood in there because you cannot get 60 votes for that. You can't. So I think the the Paul Ryan's point, if you want to give him some credit – and this, I do this very reluctantly, but is <laughs> you definitely can't, can never get 60 votes for Planned Parenthood. There's a chance you could possibly get 50, which is so he's, I think his point is if you're going to do it, you have to do it on budget reconciliation. Right. Um, also, I just hate myself for having you said that sentence because it sounds so lame, but yes. <laughs> um, but even then you might not get it because you got a couple of Republicans who have said that they would not support a bill without Planned Parenthood. So maybe you could lose two, get Pence to uh, to break the tie or whatever. But that's the only shot. Yeah. So that's the shutdown. So we'll see what happens on that in the next couple of weeks. The other, the other variable here is uh, they all go on recess, I believe, at the end of next week for an April recess. So uh, these members will be going home to their constituents and uh, town halls and district offices and all the rest. So... We will see where things stand at the end of next week, but if there is a need to apply pressure to members of Congress, um, you know, we're going to have to have a a big recess here and get people out there because, uh, you know, that will make a difference when they come back and try to um, pass this government funding bill. Yeah, I think think people should 
put pressure on them. There, here's the one thing I guarantee. They are going to try to do a lot of shitty things that hurt people the second they come back. So yeah. <laughs> yes. have your voices heard now. Like, let's, it's not like they learned their lesson are going to do only good things going forward. Like these people are going to try to fuck up the country. So yeah. show up at the town halls, make the calls, send the letters send the emails, do the, you know, do what you did the last couple of times and made a difference. Yep. So before we get to X, um, we should just check in with our pal, Devin Nunes. He's had, he's he's just, that guy, man, I bet he wishes he was maybe not on the Intel committee at this point, that he was just some backbencher Republican who was uh, just twiddling his thumbs. Um, No, he's too dumb to know that. (laughs) I want to know what's going on in Devin Nunes' head. Like, I want to know what he thinks right now. Um, So, last week he informed the White House and the press corps that Trump transition officials had been the incidental target of surveillance operations. Also said that they had their names revealed in intelligence reports that were circulated around the Obama administration. He didn't tell Adam Schiff, his counterpart on the House Intel Committee, or anyone else on the committee about this information. He didn't tell anyone where he got this information, refused to reveal his sources to anyone. And then it was reported that he got the information while he was at the White House. Um, and then the White House said he was there without anyone at the White House knowing which is impossible. <laughs> Unless he jumped a fence. Unless he jumped a fence. De- Devin Nunes is now a fence jumper. Sean Spicer actually said at a briefing he was not sure if a member of Congress had to be cleared to get into the White House. What the fuck? Does anyone brief these people on like the just the most basic rules of government? Like people just can come in and out of the White House now? No, yes. Every single, just so everyone knows, every single visitor to the White House, no matter who you are, no matter how important you are, you're the Speaker of the House, you have to be waved in, you have to be in the White House records, You ha- everyone would know that you're coming to the White House. You don't just slip into the White House, meet a source who tells you that the Trump transition officials were spy on, spied on, and then just leave without anyone knowing. Yeah, it, it just, just to talk about Sean Spicer for one second. Yes, please. Just so people understand how press secretaries before Sean Spicer operated, not just <laughs> Robert Gibbs, Jay Kearney, and Josh Ernest in the Obama administration, but everyone before that is for hours and hours before the press secretary briefs, a t- his, his or her large team puts together all the questions that they could possibly get asked and then combs the government for answers to those questions, whether it's, you know, what's in the news that day or some international incident or you know, a shooting somewhere in the country. So they, they have an answer, right? It's called guidance. And <laughs> that is a very effective process. It is pretty clear that Sean Spicer does zero prep. Like, he just, even if he didn't want to answer the question, he could have practiced a non-answer before he got asked <laughs> that. Like, it's an insane thing to say. Yeah, man. Spicy. Not sure it's working out well for him. Um, so, like, once again with this Russia thing, it's just, it's like... Who knows what's buried at the bottom of all this bullshit, but um, just a lot of covering up for, you know, seemingly no reason. (laughs) Like, so Devin Nunes now is like pausing all of the House investigations. He claims that he doesn't want to interview. uh, Sally Yates was supposed to testify. Clapper was supposed to testify. All these people are supposed to testify. And he's like, no, 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 I'm like waiting on James Comey. Um, but that's sort of an excuse that he wants to pause all the investigations for right now. Um, 
Republicans are starting to bail on Nunes being the head of the Intel Committee, or you know, some have called for him to recuse himself of, the, of this investigation, or at least explain where the hell he got this information that he decided to tell the rest of the country about Trump transition officials being spied on. So Lindsey Graham, John McCain in the Senate have both said something. Charlie Dent, Walter Jones in the House have started saying something. So Republicans are starting to fold here. Um, it's starting to seem like perhaps the House arm of the Intel Committee is not going to give us the investigation that we need that's going to reveal anything important, and that maybe the Senate Committee, headed up by Richard Burr, Republican Richard Burr and Democrat Mark Warner, um, is the only hope here. I think I believe they're having a hearing as we record this. Yeah. I mean, if you were Trump and his team of goons, geniuses, whatever, right? (laughs) His team of populist nativist assholes. uh, (laughs) Would you, and you believed in your core that you were innocent and this was a bunch of bullshit, right? Right. You would want Nunez to step down because no one is going to, if Nunez goes into this, he looks at all the stuff, he goes through everything, holds hearings, all the right people, even if he does every right thing from now to the end. No one would believe a clean bill of health for Trump, right? right? You only want Nunez there if you think there is something at the bottom of this that is bad for you because you want him to be running interference from you. And so Trump's team is acting like they're guilty by standing by Nunez. Paul Ryan is acting like Trump is guilty by standing by Nunez. And Nunez, by being Nunez, is acting like Trump is guilty. Or they're just a bunch of idiots who haven't been, uh, who aren't playing checkers or chess or anything, or any kind of game. <laughs> what is the game they would be playing? I, I don't, like, like, Hangman? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Those, those are, there are words in Hangman. So it seems unlikely. <laughs> Tic-tac-toe? I don't know. What's is there is there any game that they can play? I don't know. I think they're just, no. they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Um, yeah. It's not good, though. Not good. So, no. I don't, I mean, I don't, like, it's tough. It's a tough position because I don't know again we're still in a spot where like where can we get a bipartisan independent investigation that gets to the bottom of this like maybe maybe mark warner uh can help us here maybe you know richard burr is not going to be as partisan as nunes was um in the senate who knows i mean the answer here is the fbi the answer is the fbi yes once again, which has worked out great for Democrats in recent months. So yeah. what could go wrong? Once again, a nation turns its lonely eyes to James Comey. <laughs> yes. So that is that should sit well with everyone. Okay. When we come back, we will be talking to the host of the Axe Files, David Axelrod. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. 
You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. On the pod today, we have former senior advisor to Barack Obama, the director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, and the host of the Axe Files, David Axelrod. How's it going, man? It's going great for me. <laughs> I don't know about the country, but... <laughs> It's, it's going great for me, man. Everything's good. It's good to finally have you on. Yeah. Well, we spent a lot of good time together. We certainly. You know, I always say the same thing. The best time I ever had in the White House was with you guys, with you and uh, Dan Lovett, and all those guys around uh, the stuff that mattered. You know, and I value it. So I miss our good time. I miss our mustache meetings. Yeah, yeah those yeah. are the good old days. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, State Senator Eric Lesser, who was your assistant at the Times, would email all the speechwriters and say, "It's time for the mustache meeting," and that would mean that we'd go sit in your office and talk about all the speeches for the week, and we do that every day. It was it was the best part of the day. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm sure they're having those meetings right now in the White House. You think so? You think they have meetings every day to say, "Here are the tweets we're going to." I'm sure throw out today. I'm sure they're careful. No, I think it's more like the meetings to clean up the tweets. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're right. How would you like to be? Look, I, I, I'm sure you guys have beaten up on Spicer, uh, and he made a Faustian bargain for sure. But what a miserable job! Uh, <laughs> yeah, to have to chase yes. to chase that stuff, and well, to try and justify the unjustifiable, to try and make up look, uh, you know, sound like down and down sound like up. I, I just. Uh, I, I would rather be boiled in oil than have to do that. <laughs> well, we were just talking about this because uh, we were talking about Nunes and Spicer saying, like, well, I, I don't know if he was if he was at the White House. I don't know if members of Congress have to be cleared to get into the White House. And it's like, can you imagine <laughs> the meetings, the, the the press secretary prep meetings for the briefing every day under Spicer? Like, what is happening there? <laughs> yeah. I don't think they're, I don't well, think of course, they're happening. He could have, as, as Nunes said, he could have snuck into the White House at night, because they don't, they don't reveal who comes into the White House anymore. So uh, he could have done that, or as I pointed out, he might have just been a fence jumper uh, <laughs> over there. But uh, no, I know. I just, I mean, there is a, there isn't a day that goes by that Sean doesn't have to say or or doesn't say something that 
just causes you to scratch your head. And I've known him. Like, I've known him. You've probably known him, too. Uh, you know, he's a pretty, he was pretty well-liked, and I think he's still well-liked uh, among reporters in Washington. But, man, he's gotten himself into a jam here. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, so, X, before you came on, we, uh, I tweeted this morning that you were joining us, and I asked people for questions for you. So we have some great Twitter questions. Uh, some, All right. some, some, one of the most popular ones was, when does the mustache return? Um, Paul Begala and many others asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what happened there. You know that I shaved it off because I was uh, raising money for epilepsy research. This is the cause of my life. Right. My daughter's life was fairly ruined by unrelenting un, uh, seizures for 19 years from the time she was seven months old. And my wife started this foundation, uh, Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, to raise uh, money for cutting-edge research into epilepsy. And we got this idea to slash the stash and raise money. That way we raised a million, too, including, by the way, $100,000 from the Donald J. Trump Foundation. Uh, I feel like I should note that. I shamed him into giving me I remember uh, that. $100,000. I was on Morning Joe, and I pointed out that we never collected the $5 million he owed us when, when the president produced his birth certificate. And so I said, at least you could give me 100000 for this. He did. Uh, then I took that to Mark Cuban and said, you can't let Donald Trump outdo you. And he gave me 200000 So I have a big debt of gratitude to the president for that. But as I, sh- I shaved this off on national television, I walked uh, a few s- steps away after the event and my wife of then 33 years, Susan, says, I always hated that thing anyway. So now Good that time it's to tell you. Off. So I am under edict smart. not to grow the That's mustache smart. back. Susan is And I actually, feel, you know, I look at the old pictures and I think, that is kind of dopey. Uh, <laughs> why did I have that thing? I mean, I think that when I look back at the pictures of me with a shaved head for no real reason for much of the campaign in the White House. Um, yeah, what was that? I meant to ask you about that. I have no idea. It was very easy. <laughs> kind of like a skinhead. I didn't, have to, I didn't have to go to a barber shop. We were on the road, and I could just do it myself, which, you know, don't cut your own hair is my lesson there. Um, I think you guys know if you can. I, my feeling is if you have hair... You ought to grow it. Uh, those of us who are follically challenged, uh, you know, don't understand why people would shave their heads. But anyway, go ahead. Um, so the question I get the most is, someone actually asked, what the hell is going on in this country? Ask him. But um, I, I haven't really talked to you, and i talked to you a lot, um, about these first 60-something days of Trump. And mm-hmm. I know there's a temptation to take everything Trump does <clears throat> to like a 10 on the outrage meter every day. So... I was going to ask you in your the outrage mind, meter is on tilt. It's on tilt. But in your mind, what worries have been warranted, and what worries have been unwarranted, or maybe a little over exaggerated? Look, here's my view. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't like the policies. I hate the policies. But I'm old enough to have been through a lot of elections, and I know that when you win, uh, you get to make the policies, and when you lose, you don't. <clears throat> my big concern is. Um, are two really one is there is absolutely no appreciation for institutions for the importance of institutions he will assault any institution whether it's the media or the courts or uh... the intelligence community uh... for his own narrow political concerns he does not see that as a problem and and you know it's so elections come and go 
but we have to sort of stand up for democratic institutions. That's why this Russia thing is so uh, concerning. So that's one of my concerns. The other is, and you guys uh, can speak to this as well, when we came to the White House, I hadn't been in government before, but I was surrounded by people who had a lot of experience. Rahm had been chief, he was chief of staff, he had been in Congress and leadership, he had been six years in the Clinton White House, and uh, Pete Rouse was like the guru of Capitol <laughs> Hill. You know, it spent uh, 30 years there, <clears throat> including with the leader, and, you know, just knew everything. And, and, you know, you could go on and on. There were people who knew how to get things done. You look at the, this president, the least experienced president in history, never been in government, never been in the military, and you look at the people around, not one senior person other than, I guess, Spicer, has actually served in government. Uh, so is it really surprising that his major initiatives have kind of crashed and burned? And, uh, you know, I worry about the sort of, maybe I should be grateful that some of those initi- initiatives <laughs> crashed and burned. But what happens when North Korea... Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, launches a missile and uh, in our direction. What happens when the, as you guys know, every day in the White House uh, threatens to bring something that you never even anticipated? Yeah. If you don't have people who are experienced around you and the president himself is inexperienced, uh, it seems to me that's a prescription for disaster. And uh, so that worries me a lot. How do you think the Democrats are handling this um, strategically? You know, um, I think that uh, in the early uh, going, I think they've been fine. Um, you know, I've always been of a belief that, um, and this probably is unpopular with your vast audience, but uh, I, I think if an opportunity presented itself to do something that would actually help people, uh, that, that, you know, as a party, you, you're, you're foolish to take the posture that you're not going to do it. I'm not in the resisted every... Now, I don't know if that'll ever happen. Right, that's my But thing. if Donald Trump said, yeah. I'm going to spend a, bill, a, bill, a trillion dollars, I want to spend a trillion dollars, not uh, tax credits for wealthy investors who are going to do infrastructure already, but actually to rebuild bridges and roads and airports and do the things that we really need done in this country and put people to work... Um, should the Democratic Party say no? We're not. We're not going to do that because that would be helpful to you. I think that's a foolish strategy. Um, I'm even, you know, and this will, if I haven't, uh, if I haven't sent people's, uh, you know, to the ramparts against me with that. Let me say I'm ambivalent about this filibuster on Gorsuch uh, for the, you know, uh, and I understand it completely. Merrick Garland's a friend. I. I admire him. I think he may be the most uh, impressive nominee ever uh, to the Supreme Court, and the way he was treated was horrendous. Uh, but um, I, I just think you've got to pick your, uh, your battles. Gorsuch is going to be on the court. We know that. So really what the decision is on the filibuster is can you force them to change the rules so it's then easier for them to put the next guy on. And it seems to me the next guy or gal likely a guy in their case, uh, could be uh, a really decisive appointment. Uh, so, you know, I, you asked Dan, how are the Democrats doing? I think doing pretty well uh, so far, but I, I, I think there has to be more nuance to the positions, uh, you know, as events present themselves. 
I guess on the Gorsuch thing, though, I mean, I, I went back and forth on this at first, too. But it's like, if every Supreme Court justice so far has gotten um, 60 votes, so there was not a filibuster, you know, isn't it incumbent on a president to nominate someone who they believe is in the mainstream enough to garner those 60 votes? Like, which is why President Obama put up Merrick Garland and not someone further to the left. Yeah. He did the responsible thing. Yeah. And uh, and they did the irresponsible thing. Um, but under normal circumstances, Gorsuch, I think, would get... If it uh, wasn't Trump. ...significant number of votes because he is qualified. Uh, and, you know, most people you talk to uh, in the judiciary would, would say that, that he is well qualified for the Supreme Court. He got, you know, high ratings... Uh, and so on. So I don't know. It's a tough one because I, I, I think what McConnell did was uh, abhorrent and, you know, really subversive. They would say, well, Harry Reid did this on uh, in the past. So, but we're in this mad cycle here. And if we were going to have the battle of the filibuster, I'm not sure I would do it on this one. But uh, it seems like that decision's been made. You know, what's interesting to me, I, I don't know if you've been following uh, Trump's tweets today, but, you know, he's now... Oh, we have. Every day. ...on the uh, Freedom Caucus, uh, and Ryan's out there saying, look, the president's going to have to cooperate with Democrats if these guys don't uh, get in line. Uh, I wonder, you know, exactly what they mean by that. Is, I mean, are they going to now produce a health reform that actually fixes the Affordable Care Act and maintains coverage and does all the things that Democrats want? I mean, I can't even imagine what they're talking about. Yeah, it feels like it's not well um, thought out. <laughs> which, yeah. which makes this which is unusual. This is the exception you know. that proves the rule, yeah. Uh, but I guess that could be the case. Axe, how do you think um, Democrats sort of break through the noise with an economic message, right? Like, we talk a lot about... Uh, the Clinton campaign and, you know, she didn't talk enough about jobs in the economy. And then the Clinton campaign will say, well, yeah, we talked about it every day, but it never broke through. And, you know, I think there's some truth on both sides, right? Like it's when when Trump Trump gives people shiny objects to go run after. And then that's what the news covers that day. And it's hard to sort of break through with, with the message on economic stuff. And I can imagine this happening in 2018 and 2020. Um, is it just that the party needs to be more creative, more disciplined? What do you think? Well, uh, I think, it, you know, the, the, the problem with Hillary's message was there, it was always uh, like a, a thousand trees and no forest. Uh, you know, at, at, at the first level, an economic message has to be a values-driven message. And perhaps you're, you're one of the great writers of our time, speechwriters of our time. You've written some wonderful words uh, over time on this. And you remember some of the great speeches on economics that the president made were very much about not just uh, pro- they weren't just programs they were about the values behind them and why it's important that people have opportunity and what a job means and um, so I think that values based argument was missing from her uh, rhetoric and that has to be restored but I have a another concern which is you know there's a lot of uh, Trump has uh, he he, he Pandered to the alienation that people uh, feel, the sense of uh, loss, the sense of being left behind in the economy, the sense of being disrespected, and he identified villains, and the villains were Mexico, and the villains, and the villain was China, 
Uh, and the real story of our time, and the one that I think is most menacing, is not China and not Mexico, but robots and computers. Mm. Uh, you know, there was a study recently that said in the next couple of decades we're going to lose 40% of our jobs to automation. And those jo- and that's going to keep moving up the, the scale. I mean, how long will it be before artificial intelligence uh, produces better podcasters? That's kind of a scary prospect. What? But the point is, uh, we don't have an answer to that. What's our plan for that? I mean, there's a, and it's a, it's a difficult one because you can hand people checks, uh, but uh, jobs are about more than paychecks. Uh, you know, jobs are about dignity. They're about self-worth. Um, this is a major challenge for our country. And I saw Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, say, well, automation's not on our radar screen. Yeah, so well, that's that. pretty scary. Uh, and I think Democrats need to say, what are we going to do in this new economy? How are we going to make sure that people have meaningful employment, get compensated uh, fairly for it, have the education and training they need to fill the jobs of the future? I mean, there. So I think there's a great big open space there, and it may not be as sexy as uh, as uh, China and Mexico, but it's much more important. How do you think Democrats should think about? Like, there's sort of a choice here. It feels like like McConnellism, right, worked for winning the 2010 elections, right, against us. Right. But it clearly has had some long-term consequences for them. Do you think trying to take the House back is important enough to spend some long-term political capital um, to have a shot at gaining seats in 18? Like, you mean, I thought where you were going is, do you relentlessly uh, obstruct, as McConnell did, uh, to produce failure? Or the perception of failure, or the perce- or to exacerbate people's frustrations and create a better climate for change, is, is that what you're Correct. suggesting? Yep, yep. Yeah, no. I mean, I think that's the big uh, the big question is um, if the Republicans aren't going to cooperate in the first place. You know, it was hilarious to hear Trump go out and say, "Well, Democrats, you know, killed this bill because we didn't get one Democratic vote. They didn't ask for one Democratic vote." They didn't try to get a Democratic vote. They didn't want a Democratic vote. And that's a big difference between Obama and Trump because we spent a full year on health care trying to involve Republicans. There were over 100 Republican amendments in the Affordable Care Act. There was none of that. So there's a real impetus to say, fine, you want to run it, you run it, and let's see how it goes. Uh, and that's a, you know, it's a respectable theory. The exception is, uh, Dan, if something uh, surfaces like a infrastructure bill, uh, do you say no? Do you say, I'm not going to take this chance to put, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people to work because it'll create a more favorable environment in 2018? That's a very tough call. And I may be soft-hearted, but um, I-, I feel like it would be turning our backs on those people. And I'm not sure it wouldn't backfire. Uh, on us, because Trump would surely use it uh, in 2018. So I just don't know, but I know that there's a. It is. It is the debate. Uh, it is the debate right now. So, so you guys will uh, be interested uh, because of the enterprise that we were involved in. That I sat down the other day to do a sort of podcast on TV with John McCain. Oh, nice. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, it's going to it's, it's airing this Saturday night right uh, on CNN. 
Uh, it's going to be on CNN on uh, Saturday night. Excellent. Uh, opposite night. the uh, Oregon uh, North Carolina game. So um, <laughs> I know you guys probably won't be watching. But hey, that's what DVRs um, are for, man. But the but the um, it was interesting how um, nostalgic he was for uh, the days when he could work with a Ted Kennedy when there were uh, when you could have. You know, he said we'd have titanic fights and call each other all kinds of names, and then we'd walk off, and T- Teddy would put his arm around me and say, well, we did pretty good, didn't we? <laughs> uh, or he talked about his relationship with Mo Udall, who predates you guys, but was a great towering liberal leader in the House from Arizona in the uh, 70s and 80s, early 80s. And Udall uh, died of Parkinson's disease and was quite debilitated at the end. And McCain talked, uh, you know, I asked him, because someone told me, he used to go over and read the Arizona clips to Udall uh, at the end of his life, even though Udall couldn't respond um, because he loved them. Yeah. And yet they disagreed on everything, you know, or most things or many things. They worked together on some. And uh, it was interesting to hear him uh, talk about that. He also, by the way, you know, I every time I tried to get him a comment on Trump, he'd say, well, I have confidence in his national security team. So what about him? Well, uh, you know, I don't know who he's <laughs> listening to. So finally I said, um, you know, you were uh, the, the face of the Reagan Republican when you got elected. Uh, you were sort of the poster boy for the, the Reagan generation of Congress. A lot of people who support Donald Trump uh, assign the Reagan tradition to him. They say he's, he's like Reagan. He's a disruptor like Reagan. That was the one place where uh, McCain just couldn't. He couldn't restrain himself, and he said, uh, uh, "Not, not at all. <laughs> no comparison." <laughs> and then he went off on, you know, how can you compare a guy who, uh, who calls, uh, who says the United States is like Putin, uh, with a guy who said tear down that wall? And he went off on this long riff about that. So he kind of left it. He let his cards down there, uh, and uh, obviously, no love lost. No, I'm sure. So. I, I when we ask people for questions for you, um, some version of this question came up quite a few times, and I thought it would be an interesting one to ask. Um, someone said, "Why is he so damn reasonable? Doesn't he realize what's at stake?" Which I thought was an interesting way to phrase it. Now, look, I I've known you for a long time, and you are a proud liberal, and you've also you're a political fighter. And if I was, you know, on a putting together a campaign team to go against anyone, you'd be like the top draft pick, you know? Um, but I think, you know, you're a commentator now, too. If and, you're you, if you, and if you ran, John, I would get out of what I was doing, and I would uh, be drafted. Perfect. So. I've been working on a draft Favreau uh, campaign for a long time now. Yeah, there's a lot, yeah. Of, a lot of podcasts. Favreau would be a great candidate. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's a West Wing plot line, Sam Seaborn. Maybe we could work that out now. Yeah, yeah well, we'll see. Um <laughs> No, but I mean, I guess the question is, you know, you you are, you have been pretty reasonable over the last you know year or so since you've left the White House, yeah. and how how do you deal well, with look, that? Um, and... First of all, my job, you know, when I signed, up, I did not want to be in those little cable TV boxes, you know, fighting with some uh, pimply faced uh, <laughs> uh, young, you know, Republican firebrand over Planned Parenthood. Right. You know, that's not the role I want to play in my life at this point. Uh, I've been involved in this in 40 years. I've seen a lot. And I try and bring the perspective of those 40 years. Um, you know, and I know people were uh, annoyed with me when I was critical of uh, Hillary's campaign. 
during the election. I think I was right about those criticisms. They were criticisms based and born of my years of experience. And, you know, I think the result spoke for itself. I, you know, there's no doubt Jim Comey hurt her candidacy. The Russians uh, were outrageous and, and subversive uh, what they did. But it takes work to lose to Donald Trump, you know. And I tried along the way to say, you know, I don't think this is the right thing to do. And that's the role. And, I've, and I was obviously quite critical of, of the Trump campaign and other campaigns as well. That's the role that I'm playing uh, at CNN, there are plenty of people there to be surrogates, you know, and I can get quite passionate, I, uh, as I did over the health care debate, you guys both know, I, yeah. you know, I'm very emotional about the Affordable Care Act because of the experiences I had in the health care system with my kid. Um, but I, I think it's good to be, uh, to have some perspective, and it's good to say, yeah, these institutions matter, uh, and uh, the institutions so the survival of our institutions is uh, important because there will be a Democratic president again. There will be a Democratic Congress again. I believe that the progressive message will uh, prevail, uh, you know, because we, that's the nature of our system. It's a, you know, we go in cycles, and I think there are good progressive answers to a lot of the, the, the you know, I don't think you can solve a lot of the problems that we face today without a government and without uh, us working together as a society to face them. Uh, but, um, you know, my job there is to bring some historical perspective, to bring the perspective of someone who's worked in 100, whatever, 50 campaigns, who's worked in presidential campaigns for a long time, who's been in government, uh, about how this all works and doesn't work. And I know that frustrates folks sometimes, but uh, it's a role I'm comfortable in playing. Cool. All right, Axe, let me ask you one last question. Let's hypothetically say Donald Trump calls you up and says, I give you $100,000 and played a prominent role in getting rid of your mustache. Uh, I need you to give me advice. You can be the Mark Penn to my Bill Clinton. Um, what advice would you give Trump to get out of the situation he's currently in? Ooh, I don't know about that Mark Penn analogy, Dan. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> just, just stoking the fire. I would... Um, uh, I would say, uh, first of all, I, w- I would say address the things that I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation. Get rid of uh, some of the folks you have. Bring in some people who who can actually get things done, who know how to get things done. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing that you can't do, though, and the thing that I don't know how to solve is, if you don't have a worldview, if you don't have a philosophy, if your only philosophy is sort of self-promotion and self-perpetuation uh, and branding and all that stuff, you know, our experience was with a guy who came to office with a worldview. He understood where he wanted to lead. There were things, values, and there were, uh, there were things that were important to him, and it drove everything. Yep. Everything flows from the top. How do you How do you say to a guy who doesn't read and doesn't, really have much intellectual curiosity, um, you know, here's how you should uh, drive your administration. It's pretty hard to import uh, perspective, conscience, vision, uh, you know, but I think that's where he's left to, that's where he's left to, so he's got to find some people around him uh, who have both experience and perspective and try and make something coherent out of it. Uh, 
I'd also kind of lay off the tweets, you know, <laughs> which I know he loves and he thinks it drives. And, you know, some, it does probably uh, drive his base. I mean, it does keep him afloat with those folks. Uh, you know, I saw 47% in, uh, or, and 67% of Republicans said in the CBS poll yesterday they thought he was being bugged during the campaign. So he, he is reaching coming. some people, but at some cost, you know, in terms of, diverting attention from the thing that he should be relentlessly pursuing, which is jobs, 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 the economy, the economy, the economy, which is why people in the main elected him. Axe, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone should... Guys, let me say, I am proud of what you're doing. I'm proud of what you've put together. Um, I, uh, I think one of the great honors of my life has been to be associated with, with all you guys, and uh, that includes... Uh, with uh, Lovett and Tommy and the whole uh, Crooked Media crew before you were Crooked Media. Well, and uh, I, I really look forward to see what you guys to, to uh, seeing what you guys do in the future. Well, I appreciate that, and you know, along with Barack Obama, I don't think I've learned more about writing and politics and communications from anyone but but you. So I appreciate and that. That's why I'm going to be chairman of your campaign, man. <laughs> That's right. We're getting the gang back I together. I can't wait. Bob told me he's coming out of retirement for a 2 fav so. Yeah. So we're all, yeah, we're all come out of the woodwork. <laughs> hey, listen, all you people out there, all you uh, Pod Save America people, if you want John Favreau to run for public <laughs> office, tweet, email, text, do whatever thing, other things you do on social media. Get something going here. I'm, I am happy with my podcasting career for now. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> Axe, everyone, go right, subs- guys, everyone, to be with you. everyone go subscribe to the Axe Files and tune in to CNN Saturday night at 9 p.m. Uh, to watch Axe interview John McCain. Uh, Axe, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for coming by. All right, brother. Thank everybody. you. Okay, that is our show for today. Thank you, David Axelrod, for joining us. And uh, we'll see you again very soon. Bye, guys. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. 
Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.